Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. Welcome to Weekly Review. I am not Roman Reimer. He is not here today, but there is a weekly review, so keep it tuned in to Mutiny Radio. The first hour is going to be Klee Banale on Sacred Sites, Hall No, and Anti-Colonial Resistance. And we'll be back with Hour 2, Monica, coming in to play some amazing cello music with some more artists. But first, enjoy Klee Benali on Sacred Rights uh, here on MutinyRadio.fm. It's going down, and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's going down, and you're invited for what they selling. We ain't buying. There is no running. There is no hiding. There's only fighting or dying. It's Going Down is a digital community center from anarchist, anti-fascist, autonomous, anti-capitalist, and anti-colonial movements. Our mission is to provide an autonomous and resilient platform to publicize and promote revolutionary theory and action. Go to itsgoingdown.org for daily updates. Check out our online store for ways to donate and rate and follow us on iTunes if you like this podcast. Okay, we're joining you there with Klee Benali. Klee, um, you really deserve no introduction, but can you please introduce yourselves? Introduce yourself and give a, give a listeners just a little bit of history. Currently, I live in Flagstaff, Arizona. My name is Klee Benali. Introducing my clans, where I originally come from. I hope it hasn't really gotten to that point where I don't, you know, need an introduction. But, uh, <laughs> you know, this is, uh, um, I guess, you know, sometimes by nature of just doing the work, that's what happens. Um, but, you know, honored to be uh, involved in your uh, podcast. Well, hey, thank you for coming on. In fact, you know, somebody that we just interviewed for something completely different said, hey, tell them I really respect the work that they're doing. So we're going to cover a lot of ground. We're going to talk about the recent um, anti-colonial, anti-fascist mobilization that happened in Phoenix. We're going to be talking about some of the work that Clee has been involved in, the Hall No campaign centered around um, the Grand Canyon area and surrounding communities. We're going to be talking about police violence in Native communities and also some really overarching questions we're going to pick Clee's brain about trump about uh charlottesville uh trajectory and action and kind of energy and where we see that going and everything else so let's just get started um can you tell us exactly what went down in phoenix uh, just beyond kind of the media hype what exactly happened a few days ago uh well there was a response to the general call out regarding resistance to the Trump spectacle in Phoenix. Uh, And um, there's a history, a context of indigenous, anti-colonial and anti-authoritative or anti-authoritarian 
slash anarchist um, collaboration in the past in so-called Phoenix occupied autumn lands. And this was sort of an extension of that where some folks were looking at the range of calls out that rep- were representative of the typical uh, sort of liberal, um, you know, non-strategies, if you will, of just, you know, ritual marching in circles and so forth. And so um, the aspirations of the work that we've done in the past and intentions um, really sort of were, um, you know, triggered uh, as part of the the, the, the the formation that we um, had before and we wanted to continue. So, yeah, there was a contingent of anti-colonial and anti-fascist, anti-authoritarian and anarchist folks uh, who held it down, um, you know, on very specific terms, first recognizing this is occupied stolen lands and that there are limitations of anti-fascism within that. Um, and so we just wanted to launch uh, a, 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 another sort of tension in towards a, a more interesting tendency because of those limitations. And so really what, what happened was... Um, it's a powder keg down there. I mean, Arizona has always been a powder keg. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could look at it as sort of this protracted explosion uh, since colonial invaders came to this area, and we've constantly been at war. It's never ceased, whether it's you know white supremacy, heteropatriarchy, in uh, these colonial forces that are trying to dominate and control and exploit uh, Mother Earth and her beings. So this is you know just one more phase in this ongoing war against the occupiers. And so, um, you know, this powder keg was ready to just blow. And, you know, all it took really was a few inspired autumn and Diné hands to just move the barricades and the, the, the pigs unleashed a barrage of pepper bullets. And that really was where things were triggered. There's a lot of misinformation out there about who started what, which I don't really concern myself with, you know, and ultimately it's a, it's a struggle, it's a battle and we know what the cops are capable of. It just was, you know, quite remarkable how ready they were to just unleash and, you know, clear out folks with no warning. Like there was no absolute, absolutely no verbal warning, but I mean, you know, the, the reality is they don't need one. Right. They're the cops. They represent the violence of the state and so many uh, unfortunate liberal folks, you know, think it's like a walk in the park or, you know, but we can't, we came for, you know, s- something different. And so, um, you know, the, the, the dynamics are interesting because right now the, the liberal response is like, you know, playing the victim card. It's like, look, this is what the, the state, vi- state violence, you know, rep- you know, is represented, but it's not an exception. This is the, really been the rule. It just manifests itself in different ways. And it really doesn't, um, you know, uh, unmask itself until, you know, we go against their mono- uh, monopoly on violence. And that's really what the trigger was for this, you know, sort of minor explosion of police violence as it was unveiled uh, in Phoenix on the 22nd. And were they basically trying to get all the protesters out of there? It wasn't just like a, a, a segment of people. They were basically trying to clear out everybody so the Trump people could basically get back to their cars. Yeah, it was pretty indiscriminate. I mean, initially it was focused on um, the the agitative uh, point of the anti-colonial and anti-fascist bloc, but it just spread immediately. Like, I, I think that the cops' sort of knee-jerk reaction is like, and and honestly, like 
I mean, it's it wasn't just the cops, like energy, like I mean, the tension was boiling over. As I mentioned, the sort of powder powder keg um, of white supremacy and fascism. Um, it, I just needed that tiny spark, and people just started throwing shit. I mean, people, you know, shit started popping off in different points um, once. The, the the that the tear gas pepper spray the foam projectiles and the concussion grenades were going off i mean just there were just you know small battles that were you know happening and and, and as the cops were trying to clear people from the streets people pushed back of course you know mm-hmm. and so yeah it just happened everywhere so i mean it was i, I think it it was the way that uh the cops were already anticipating they had a foregone sort of like you know probably strategy of like if there's any pushback we're just going to clear the streets i think they were already ready to do that to begin with yeah and we've seen that in other communities as well yeah um well it's really interesting you mentioned the uh the call out um i was just curious if you could kind of explain why is it important to really hammer home um the need for that anti-colonial perspective as well that basically a critique of you know fascism uh is not enough especially um where we are well the limitations of anti-fascism on stolen land is just that if there's any kind of um anti-oppression liberation uh that aren't on the terms in in regard uh in a meaningful regard to indigenous people's lands that are being occupied then it still perpetuates settler, clo- settler colonialism so you know that's a, a blind spot that's not just exists with liberal organizing and politics exists within radical frameworks too and mm-hmm. i mean it's been it's it's been addressed you know time and time again on different levels uh and today there seems to be a, a really you know there's a lot of ground that's been gained because of the work that folks have been doing the really hard work on both sides with indigenous radical uh liberation uh struggler anti-colonial um uh, folks in anti-colonial struggle who've been putting forward those analyses uh regarding radical politics and shortcomings and then also folks who've been doing meaningful like accomplice work and really sort of getting down to the 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 sort of groundwork and really finding common ground on stolen ground basically means you have to build those relationships with indigenous people and that sort of builds that framework and that's what's been missing a lot of the times and that's why it's necessary to 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 put forward this anti-colonial anti-fascism yeah, it's great because, I mean, so many of, of the things that have transpired, you know, on this continent, you know, genocide, enslavement, you know, took place long before fascism was even, you know, a preconceived ideology. Well, well you can, uh, one of the statements that I put out recently was, he, you know, you can be pro-imperialist and anti-fascist. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, that's not acceptable in terms of anti-colonial struggle. Right. And just to go off on a tangent here, you know, in so-called Arizona you know, existing there and seeing things play out now that Trump has come into office, do you see like part of his base slipping or are people just in it because Trump represents this, you know, white reaction to different social movements or just the breakdown of society? I mean, are you seeing anything different about just kind of, uh, I don't know, white reactive forces or any sort of kind of uh, right wing reactionary forces in Arizona? Or is it pretty much the same or has it gotten like worse? Are you asking if that's not been the status quo of Arizona? <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I mean, the, the, yeah, the, the, the question of things uh, accelerating um, on both sides, so-called right, so-called left on on, you know, from that perspective, 
um, from an indigenous standpoint, it's hard to, hard right. to see a difference of, of right. what, you know, has occurred. I mean, under, I, you know, I, I don't like getting sucked into this sort of dialogue, you know, that things were, because usually the liberals you use it as a segue into like, well, Trump, you know, well, the Democrats are better, you know, well, Obama was better, you know, this is the worst case. So, you know, like, and now here's our pitch for, you know, getting out the vote bullshit. Right. Um, and so what it, you know, comes down to if we contextualize it in understanding of the ongoing colonial violence that we have faced as indigenous people in this region, then, you know, we don't see any difference at all. Um, I mean, there are the critical components where, you know, if if the so-called public lands are under attack, which public all these public lands and national parks right now that Obama, the, the, the Trump administration is, is, is you know, targeting for um, removing those monument, national monument designations and all that. I mean, there's a lot of that sacred lands, and those are hard-fought battles for some of not only um, the the indigenous nation, sort of so-called tribal officials, um, but you know, indigenous spiritual practitioners and traditional people who've been sort of at the front lines of the sacred land struggles. You know, there is a lot at stake, but you know, part of that is just recognizing the limitations of um, the support we have in our struggles for autonomy to um, uh, regain those lands and protect them. Uh, for our future generations uh, in the face of, you know, a, a, a direct assault. I mean, there's the slow, you know, sort of uh, microaggressions that we face under the Democrats, and here's like the full-on onslaught. And, you know, honestly, you know, we find um, who really has our backs, who we don't need to explain these terms to when these fights are occurring in the face of this, um, uh, you know, the, the, the fascism being brandished in such an overt way. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm probably one of the worst people to ask about that. I mean, I know if we talk to undocumented folks, you know, there's much more fear. Um, you know, that 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 is is the reality. I don't want to, like, you know, sort of um, any any way pretend that that's not a dynamic. I mean, because the, 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 the implications um, are really life and death. Um, you know, the implications for Tana Autumn folks whose lands bisected by this uh, imperial border, um, you know, that's another reality that um, is faced with this escalation, um, with their lives being threatened, their cultures, you know, being threatened, um, and so forth. And so, uh, you know, the, 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 the reality is something that, you know, this is the status quo of Arizona that we faced on different levels with these militias, with, with fucking neo-nazis and so forth um it's just it's great now that people can actually put a name to the fascism mm -hmm. put a name and articulate um not only recognize it but recognize then articulate how they can engage or not in struggle against that so i think that that's what we're seeing more is like people who recognize once you once you're in a heightened state of fear um you you lose more options you know these options and having faith in the system when all that shit fails and is out the window which we know as radicals is inevitable mm -hmm. um but uh more and more folks i think are are lining up on those sides and we recognize we have more people have our backs how far that goes we'll see because you know continually you know you know being in in, in this sort of edge and of the at the margins of the margins um, especially as anti-colonial, anti-capitalists and anti-authoritarians, um, you know, we, we're the first to be thrown under the, the bus. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, we're going to switch gears a little bit. We're going to talk about the Hall No campaign. Um, and there's been a lot of 
well, at least some media attention on, you know, what's been going on in Flint. Obviously, the situation there is still ongoing, but specifically about water quality. And I know that, um, or at least I think that uh, kind of the, the whole no campaign started off of uh, really looking at the the issues around water in Native communities. Can you just talk a little bit about that? I know I think you guys like even went to the UN recently, right? Uh, not folks with the Hall No campaign. Yeah. Um, our, our campaign is uh, situated specifically in so-called northern Arizona around the Grand Canyon mm-hmm. in support of the ongoing long-term resistance of the Havasupai whose ancestral homelands are in and on the Grand Canyon area, as well as um, our communities, Diné communities, who have faced the, the, the ongoing legacy of nuclear colonialism and the poisoning of our land and our lives. Um yeah, uh, the UN isn't my <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah, my battleground and focus. But um, as far as the campaign is going, um, really, Hall No is formulated from uh, primarily Diné folks who recognize that the transport route was um, being unaddressed. Uh, there's nonprofit organizations who have been focused on the mining and milling of uranium. And just to put this in perspective for those of you who don't know about our campaign. Um, there's a, a uranium mine owned and operated by Energy Fuels Resources, who is based out of so-called Canada, and they also have headquarters outside of Denver, uh, so-called Colorado, and they are one of the largest um, operators of uranium mines and industry in this entire so-called U.S. And so they purchased a mine that's been contentious since the 1980s uh, since it when it was first proposed on the south rim of the grand canyon basically it's just like six miles from the entrance of the grand canyon uh and it's right at the base of red butte which is a sacred site it's a mo- one of the most sacred sites for the havasupai it's their place of emergence in this world and it's culturally significant to denan hopi nations as well and so this uranium mine was shut down in the 1980s. Actually, a group called Emetic, the Evan Meekum, who was the, the governor of Arizona at the time, uh, this group was called Emetic, Evan Meekum Eco-Terrorist International Conspiracy. Um, and they, they severed power lines. You know, they took like awesome liberatory actions, exemplary actions against this uranium mine and helped to shutter it. Uh, and it was put on standby and recently uh, reactivated in uh, 2012, 2013. And they're almost to the point where they're ready to start hauling out ore and transporting it 300 miles through uh, Diné communities, which have already been impacted by thousands of abandoned uranium mines. Mm-hmm. We have 20, more than 22 wells that have been closed by the EPA because they have um, they exceed the, the, the radiation contamination levels that's allowable for drinking water. You know, our lands have been poisoned and they've rendered, been rendered toxic by the extreme exploitation of nuclear colonialism. And so they want to transport this up to Ute Mountain Ute territories um, or lands at the White Mesa Mill, which is the only commercially operating uh, processing plant for uranium in the country, and it's owned by energy fuels as well. And so we, as Hall No, formed to shut down the transport. So we're supporting Havasuai and nonprofit efforts to shut down the mine. They're in litigation in court right now regarding sacred lands and water issues because the Colorado River is in the Grand Canyon and more than 40 people rely on that. So you can't get any more, you know, of a threat to critical water, life waterways. And right. it's a sacred, sacred river, of course. 
Um, but then you have the threats to sacred lands uh, and our livelihoods are then um, coming up, you know, to the, the Ute Mountain Ute lands and the White Mesa Mill. I mean, that area is, is rendered toxic as well. And they built that mill on sacred sites as well. And so we're looking, we've developed basically uh, community action plans. We held a tour uh, in June uh, to um, basically link up with folks and create a network uh, to engage in direct action because uh, we know these laws have failed us. They failed us in other struggles to protect sacred sites. There is no guarantee for protection for our religious freedoms as indigenous people when it comes down to this so-called constitution. Uh, so we, we, we know the failures of this uh, government system regarding indigenous autonomy and cultural survival. And so we've been creating contingency plans to say we're going to shut them down along this whole route. And so we did that tour and we're continuing our organizing efforts to you know prepare to engage to shut them down. Um, for people outside of the area, where should they go to connect? And like, how do you think that people not living in that region could uh, link up and help with the campaign? Uh, hallno.org is the website. We're on social media as well. So you can just, you know, search Hallno. Um, but my recommendation is not just to support this struggle. It's to support uh, that the front lines are really everywhere. And that's just not a cliched statement <laughs> or a slogan that we throw out there. I mean, anytime you support indigenous sacred land struggles in the lands that you're standing on, um, then you further our struggles to stop uranium mines, you know, at Red Butte, for example, or, you know, you help to shut down telescopes on Mauna Kea, or you help to uh, shut down bars, you know, biker bars from being built, you know, by the Black Hills. I mean, th this is really how interconnected these struggles are on that basis. Um, and so I, I highly in engage folks not just to sort of like, you know, glamorize or, or romanticize and fetishize one specific instance. And that really is part of the problem. What we've seen come out of Standing Rock is everybody is rushing to Standing Rock and forgetting about the land they're actually, you know, on mm -hmm. uh, and, 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 and drawing away resources from those critical battles in, in many cases have been waged for decades. Uh, and so. I highly, you know, um, recommend folks finding ways to meaningfully engage to support indigenous uh, sacred land struggles and water struggles where they're at, um, more so than just sort of like try to parachute out or support. That being said, if folks want to contribute resources in other ways in, in support or bring folks out to speak about this issue, you know, that's one of the things that we're trying to do is, is you know, we recognize that these sacred land struggles are the physio-spiritual front lines in the struggle for our existence, not just our cultural survival as indigenous peoples. And so, you know, part of that, when we get, get to that understanding, especially with cross sections of different struggles and, you know, some people call it intersectionality, um, but really it's the work that we is necessary if we want to exist in these fights against these, these extremely extraordinarily violent system, systems. Well, you brought up Standing Rock, um, and, and before we were talking, before the recording, uh, mentioning this is a, it's coming up to the one-year anniversary. What do you see as the major lessons um, with with the No Dapple struggle, and also perhaps uh, the limitations that came out of that? And, and basically looking back on the struggle at Standing Rock, what do we need to learn from it in order to go forward? Yeah, there that that's a really huge question long yeah ha, ha, a very hard topic to unpack you know and mm -hmm. i'm not a, a, a i don't would ever complain to be or, or uh proclaim to be 
someone who can speak, you know, uh, from any position in representation of the what's really occurring in Standing Rock. I wasn't there as long as other folks, um, but I've been in the, at the front lines of other sacred site struggles um, uh, since I was born. You know, the, 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 my relatives come from Big Mountain and Black Mesa, where they're still to this day resisting mm-hmm. for more than 40 years uh, forced relocation at the hands of the U.S. government in the Congressional Law PL 93-531, you know, at times in the face of armed uh, federal and, and tribal agents. And so, you know, this is very much a sacred sites and water, you know, struggle in resistance to uh, resource exploitation, particularly Peabody Coal Company in that area. And so the perspective that I have comes from that, you know, and it also comes from the lessons that we learned and did not learn out of Idle No More. You know, a lot of folks, as I mentioned earlier, part of the critiques that were, were waged against Idle No More and that relate to Standing Rock is like a lot of folks, you know, took a, almost took a vacation, went up to Standing Rock and left the struggles back home behind. For example, here in the city of Flagstaff, there was a crew of folks who had, you know, had a pipeline of support up to Standing Rock. But for 20 years, we've been fighting to protect the San Francisco Peaks, which is a holy site to 13 indigenous nations from ski area development and snowmaking with 180 million gallons of treated sewage that they wanted to dump, you know, through a pipeline that they were building up the mountain. And so we we engaged in direct action. We, you know, just sort of all um, the tools that we had available in the toolbox, we engaged in that resistance. And so a contingent of folks who had been doing no dapple support um, tried to get the city of Flagstaff to pass a resolution in opposition to the Dakota Access Pipeline. And those of us who were engaged in the sacred lands defense here said, oh, hell no, we're not going to let that happen because the city of Flagstaff still to this day maintains a contract to sell that wastewater to Snowball and they benefit from that. So if you're going to have them on one hand say we oppose you know, desecration of Lake Oahe and the, 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 the Dakota Access Pipeline, but at the same time they're profiting off of the desecration of a mountain that's holy to 13 indigenous nations here, we're, we've, you've already failed. You know, that your movement has failed because it, 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 it stops short in understanding you know, the, this sort of primary contradiction of where we're at as indigenous people in the struggle against these colonial forces. Um, and that really was it is just, you know, superficial understanding of what it means to defend the sacred when the front lines are everywhere, because as indigenous people, we have that relationship where we are, where we carry that forward as, uh, that relationship to the sacred, to our sacred places as well. And so there's a lot more shortcomings. I mean, we have everything from, you know, the sort of, you know, the, the vilification of, uh, or, or how, how red warrior camp and society were vilified, you know, and the movement policing that came out of that and how that sort of was popularized. We also have the non-profit exploitation, um, which, you know, to, to this day is now a sort of never ending, no dapple, uh, uh, fundraising gala, you know, in many circles, you know, when, you know, we have more than 600 people that were arrested and where are their cases now, we had Red, Red Fawn and other folks who are still captured uh, by the state. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of work to be done, but a lot of the nonprofits seem to have just moved on with their climate justice agenda. When that agenda, you know, excludes for the most part an understanding of what it means for indigenous liberation on these lands, uh, on our terms. You know, that the ally formations that came out of that with organizations like showing up for racial justice surge you know just sort of profiteering 
regarding you know social capital that is very much the currency of the ally industrial complex you know i mean all of these dynamics we see sort of you know hyper materialized in this configuration and a lot of that came out of idle no more like idle no more a lot of folks showed up for a round dance at a mall and then went shopping afterwards you know after the 15 minute round dance was done and there was no meaningful you know engagement in the ongoing struggles not to say that you know, those steps didn't move in a good direction to wake people up and further engage them on a critical level uh, against uh, colonialism, capitalism, and so forth. But, you know, what what it, what has been the lasting meaningful impacts? And, you know, we have these lessons, but unfortunately, we're not really engaging in that critical discussion that should recognize that, you know, Standing Rock was in in many ways a strategic failure or a tactical failure. You know, is in in the one question that has to be asked that qualifies that is is the pipeline stopped? And if you can't say yes, then there was a failure. We can count the other victories that are around that regarding coalesce, co- the, the how the movement coalesced, how there's more attention now given. But you know, if you're if you're if you're comfortable with the gains won from the politics of recognition, then we the dead end of that is where the same dead end of identity politics gets you, mm-hmm. and that's just a seat at the table with the colonial authorities still in power. Whereas if we're engaging from a framework of the, the politics of liberation, you know, then we configure ourselves differently with our so-called allies or our co- actual accomplices. We implicate ourselves in a way that the outcomes of that battle isn't just people, you know, counting their social media accolades or their foundation checks, um, but we can count it uh, in a way the metrics of it changes because it's the metrics of actual movement and liberation. Do you feel with the various pipeline battles that have kind of emerged post Standing Rock, there is at least um, an acknowledgement of kind of the traps, either of nonviolence or you said like the ally industrial complex or any of these things that, that really kind of held back no dapple? Uh, two, two degrees. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's hard when we sort of do these calculations and we our analysis is in the only reflection we have is like based upon like social media like who likes and who shares what sometimes you know mm-hmm. like the, the 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 real sort of like um you know results i only count with you know who's who has our backs who's in the streets the next time we put these calls out you know for anti-colonial mobilizations and so forth or for sacred land defense um and you know to me we're still sort of like looking at small steps in those gains. You know, I, I, I've, you know, I had these same conversations uh, with other folks who are engaged in sacred lands battles, whether it's um, Medicine Lake with Pitt River and folks in so-called Northern California, um, and whether it's folks resisting the Loop 202 freeway in South Mountain, uh, threatening to desecrate autumn lands outside of so-called Phoenix. You know, we have all these same conversations in a lot of these these indigenous sacred lands defense. Um, and it's hard to say, you know, it, it, it's really hard to say because it's, it's um, we see the, 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 the consciousness raised, the awareness, but we see the shortcomings of it when it's actually time to do the hard work, the proactive work, right. the, the, the shit work where you, you have endless meetings, you know, and, <laughs> and, 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 and you're like counting your fucking like pennies to figure out what resources you can get together to, you know, keep your website going or whatever, you know? Well, so what I, is- I, I don't, I don't want to, you know, 
paint a picture of doom and gloom. But I think we need to have these real fucking conversations if we're going to yeah. get anywhere and really analyze where we're at. Because a lot of it's not strategic. It is very reactionary. Um, and, you know, a lot of it is, you know, reform based. You know, th- there's this sort of like self-assimilation and neocolonialism that, you know, stops short with these decolonial uh, um, lifestyle projects. When if we look at it from an anti-colonial struggle standpoint or an anti-colonial analysis and we want to abolish these systems of oppression that um, are perpetuated through colonialism and other sort of pillars of white supremacy uh, and, ca- you know, with capitalism and uh, heteropatriarchy and so forth, then we we start, you know, um, counting our victories in a different way. We our, our metrics changes. We do the calculation and the results. We have to be that much more critical. Um, we'll switch gears once more. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, all the organizing work that you all have been putting in against uh, police murders of Native people. And just in general, what do people need to know about the realities of police terror and murder and violence against Native communities in the U.S.? And also in regards to where you're organizing currently. So the uh, Center on Juvenile and Criminal Justice has stated that the, quote, the the racial group most likely to be killed by law enforcement is indigenous people. Um, You know, and this isn't to argue or or, or identify to argue that our oppression uh, is more severe. But, you know, I think it's a it's, it's a point to recognize that our shared struggles or that we have shared struggles uh, to ensure that there's not one more Sarah Lee Cir- Circle Bear, Corey Kenosh, or Paul Castaway, Alan Locke, um, Mahavist Good Blanket, John Williams, or L'Oreal Synogeny, which is you know an issue that really hits close to home because just 40 uh, minutes away from here in Winslow um, uh, last year, uh, L'Oreal Dene woman was shot down you know six times uh close range by uh, a fascist cop uh named austin shipley and so in arizona actually um we 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 lead that statistic if you look at it from that standpoint and see legitimacy in uh those metrics that um we face the most repression um uh, as as a as a as a racial group um for arizona um i think we accounted for a majority of the uh, police murders last year in arizona uh and specifically so-called flagstaff we're um talking to you from today uh out of uh over the past five years we look at the statistics or the, the data that was collected from the flagstaff police department here and what they found, what they reported is, is that every year they average about uh, five to 7,000 arrests um, in a town of about 60,000 people, including 15,000 or so that are part of the university. So they're a pretty sort of like fluid part of the population. Um, but uh, indigenous people comprised half of those arrests. So that's about 3,000 to uh you know 2000 to 3000 maybe a little bit more uh arrests of indigenous people but we only comprise about 12% of the population so that's about we have a population of about 6 to 10000 indigenous people who call flagstaff our home um and so if we we boil that down that's one in every two indigenous person faces arrest in this community on a yearly basis. Uh, and that's like, you know, counting young people to elderlies. Um, 
And this statistic, unfortunately, is a shared one in the so-called border towns around the, the borders of the, the Navajo Reservation. Dinepikea is, is our ancestral homelands are within the four sacred mountains. But, you know, the, the reservation boundaries, we have these sort of um, uh, border, so-called border towns that were set up initially as, you know, sort of capitalist outpoints, frontier, sort of um, military outpoints. Uh, uh, um, uh, front forts really um in trading posts that um were set up and they still perpetuate these racial you know uh racist dynamics that we see today especially in the terms of state violence in the the disproportionate targeted policing that we face as indigenous people um you know so we look at those statistics and we 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 say well um either one in every two of us or half of us in this community are criminals or we got a targeted policing problem and We're not willing to accept that we're fucking criminals because this system is illegitimate and based upon, you know, these the colonial imposed laws to begin with. And so um, this is the violence that we face. You know, this structural violence is ongoing and it is something that's completely obscured. You know, the, this, this, the, the politicians here um, gloss it over and they attribute it to, um, you know, the, the sort of transient population and the high rates of folks coming off the reservation because alcohol is, is outlawed. There's a prohibition of alcohol on reservation lands. And so they're saying, oh, well, a lot of people come here to drink. And we're like, fuck that noise because, you know, there are a range of other folks who are fluid through this community too. And they, they, they would enhance the same sort of inform how the statistics are adjusted. So we're coming to terms with that reality that indigenous bodies are still uh, policed on that extreme basis because of the threat we pose to these colonial systems. Uh, Switching gears to a little lighter subject. Um, A lot of people listening to this, or at least some of the people listening to this, have heard of your musical work in the band Blackfire. I'm hoping you can update people just what musical projects are you working on? And also, if you can please tell us about your film. Oh my gosh! Don't after talking about like all these issues, don't make this about like oh yeah, and and you're an entertainer. If you have anything to share and sell with everybody, like I mean, so so I I actually stopped playing music um, in 2012, I think, when it was clear that a guitar wasn't going to stop a bulldozer from desecrating the holy San Francisco peaks. You know, I was like, okay, I spent 24 years on stages, you know, like ranting, you know, my diatribes about, you know. Um, this the the, the 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 indigenous in rallying people around indigenous liberation resistance um and you know there's limitations to that and so um, you know right now um i don't know if i feel comfortable you know aside from directing people towards indigenous uh, so indigenous is where um myself and a collective a small collective of folks um we we focus on um putting out as much critical analysis and perspective and providing coverage to a range of issues that aren't getting the attention uh, sometimes there's a pause in the work that we do because we do a lot of behind the scenes work we do um web and graphic design development we also do strategic planning direct action training um one of the things that we're really excited about doing is we're um doing uh indigenous rooted direct action training so we're stripping away the the nv from the da the nonviolence from the direct action <laughs> that's awesome you know, and, and I, well it, it's necessary because yeah. on on the base level of the analysis it's like it perpetuates well one it reinforces that 
there's this sort of the, the polarization of violence where it's it, and that doesn't serve anybody because violence exists on a spectrum uh, and it's not you know and it perpetuates a sort of good uh, you know protector defender protester versus bad you know protector defender protester and it's it's much more complicated and beautiful than that and so you know we're trying to stimulate that with the work that we do so we do a lot of shit behind the scenes um, we invite people to engage and support our efforts by you know checking out um, whatever we produce on there I do make films I do make music music but um you know I'm, I'm not interested in in another musical career so i set that shit aside and i only do it when i feel like you know if i don't do it it's going to explode um and i share that out there but um you know i'm, I'm tired of hanging out with musicians after 24 <laughs> four years you know the, like like we we, we, we we're, we're good at aesthetics but sometimes we, you know the the actual on the ground shit is where more people are needed so you know it's great to have cheerleaders it's great to, you know, build and promote, you know, sort of create great optics around cultures of resistance and liberation. But, you know, um, that, that that's only a shell if there's nobody to fill that. Right. And so, um, you know, I'm more interested in organizing, agitating, in, in provoking and fighting as fucking fiercely and hard as possible, especially, you know, given um, how escalated shit is and, and how there's this, this sort of beautiful space that there's this tension right now. This It's it's almost like a resonance, um, like a, when you, when you tie, strike a string on a chord and it's vibrating so hard that it starts vibrating other notes around it and it almost becomes like this violent agitation. I mean, that's where we see the destabilization of the liberal, like, fucking you know environment we, we see the destabilization of um you know folks who have been on that sort of fence if you will and you know it's a beautiful ground to disturb because it's it's a growing tremor that i think if we can rattle those cages rattle those notes like that much more and and i'm not dismissing or discounting you know folks who are you know focused on the arts um, component at all it's just i've been there done that and i don't right. want to sort of um you know put out there oh yeah here's my CD go buy this <laughs> but you did you did direct a film yeah yeah I actually worked in conjunction with the another organization that I helped to form called out of your backpack media which is indigenous youth uh, response to the need for media justice in our communities and so a lot of the youth that have, uh, mentored with that uh, project helped to create the film and it specifically tackles uh, forced relocation and the identity of being a relocation refugee uh, from your own homelands uh, because of coal mining, because of the U.S. enforced laws. And, yeah. you know, just looking at power relationships beyond, you know, what we see, because, you know, we, we look at symptoms and we treat them a lot. But, you know, the radical in me always tries to pull people to the root causes and, mm -hmm. you know, that's what we tried to do through this movie. It's called Power Lines, and it's not available yet. Um, we're looking at setting up screenings in different places. At some point, there'll be a DVD, and we'll stream it somewhere. People will probably pirate it, and we'll be happy about that. <laughs> okay, cool. And just to come back to kind of a broader thing you mentioned, I find that you know myself included, most settlers, most white people, most Americans um, really have no idea just the amount of extractive industries and like land grabs that are still happening in native in native communities that are you know supposed to be sovereign governments and I, I don't know it just it blows my mind i think most people have no idea they think that oh they're just getting a check from a casino or 
you know, whatever. It's just their own thing. Like it has nothing to do with the United States. And I think most people have such a disconnect between reality that uh, land is still being taken. There's still a ton of resources being taken out of these areas. My response to that is um, this is part of the failure of the so-called climate justice movement Mm -hmm. um, as an example of where, uh, you know, shit can be worked on. And uh, global warming, from their perspective, is the greatest crisis facing humanity, which is true. But if you look at it from an anti-colonial indigenous perspective, and, you know, this is that sort of heavy words to just sort of rearticulate what my father as a traditional Dine Hatathli or healer says, is that global warming is a direct consequence of the war against Mother Earth. You know, it's a question of what side we've chosen or we found ourselves to be on or what sides then we are ready to choose mm-hmm. in this conflict. When we understand things on that terms and we see that war happening everywhere, you know, the, the, the Bay Area is just a horrendous exception. Finally, folks have woken up with an anti-colonial understanding to honor and not just recognize, but honor in a meaningful, uh, active and proactive way for Ohlone people. But, you know, where's that same support for Tongva or Chumash or Kumiai uh, folks in occupied so-called LA? You know, the obscurity of indigenous struggles is part of the responsibility of folks engaged in radical, um, uh, you know, anti-politics. And, you know, this is not to say we're arguing priorities for anybody, but to understand that, you know, we don't have a choice but to wake up every day and face the reality of this ongoing war um, brought upon us by colonialism. And it hasn't ended. There is no post-colonial in this existence for us. If we want to survive, we have to understand it on those terms. And if if we can, you know, manage to agitate and engage people on a way that they wake up to understand that and make that choice to be at our sides uh, or in a way engaged in the struggle that understands um, that at the end of the day, when we have liberation against heteropatriarchy, when we celebrate liberation against white supremacy and capitalism and fascism, all forms of fascism, um, that we have to meaningfully understand and, and, and honor the land that we're on to in that relationship. You know, it's not a one-way relationship. The earth knows us. We understand how to live with the earth. And these aren't just some colorful words. These are the teachings that we have since time immemorial. And this is what is under attack, you know, in our very existence. So the tra- trauma, it has to be healed. And it's beautiful to see that folks are willing to fight back, you know, fuck the, the political narrative uh, that of the political narrative battles you know we frame this in the struggles that we face every day at the front lines and that's where it really matters mm-hmm. well we're gonna we're gonna transition again to some kind of overarching kind of looking forward questions but um i know we don't want to frame everything in terms of trump but uh <laughs> i'm gonna frame this question i guess in, in terms of but, the trump, but. yeah in terms of the uh, the trump timeline but i mean just looking back at you know the past eight months or just kind of uh you know 2017 so far i mean you've talked a little bit about uh this this kind of acceleration on a multitude of sides but just you know what are your thoughts so far i mean what if What's your kind of analysis of the time that we're in? Uh, we're going to talk about uh, kind of like 
post Charlottesville or and all that stuff in the next question. But just looking back at this year so far, um, what are you thinking? <laughs> I, I think I've told you most of what I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking. Sure, sure. You know, I, I, I it's really I, I've been very intentional and selective of what I like choose to post or the the analyses that I articulate. Um, when, especially when Trump was, uh, you know, made that quick announcement that his first rally in the West was going to be in occupied autumn lands in so-called Phoenix. Uh, you know, I, I didn't want to put anything out there right in a thing. I just wanted to organize. I wanted to see how dirty I could get my hands. And I'm, I'm interested in getting dirt as far up in my, under my fingernails as possible until they bleed. You know, I'm not afraid of the splinters and that's where, you know, my passion is right now like uh, we could talk we could you know we could we could sort of dissect and, and sort of like mm-hmm. regurgitate the range of analyses that we have but there, there you know in what ways can we uh, you know how long can we sort of spin those same wheels about the arguments of white supremacy and, and how fucked up it is and colonialism and how fucked up it is and heteropatriarchy and how fucked up it is and so forth you know, to the point where, you know, is it about addressing the miscalculation that's being done by the dominant social order or is it about addressing what ways we can be as effective as possible? And I'm not interested in, in, in dulling any edges in the fierceness that have come from rubbing for years against stone, you know, to sharpen these edges. You know, I'm trying to find ways to be as sharp and, 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 and help sharpen as many other folks as possible um you know in in as they find their way in this battle in the range of battles of battles um against colonialism so you know i i think that that's the critical point where i want to be and i know it's colorful and it's almost sort of evading you know a great opportunity to like you know um present some great slogans or catchphrases to address this but we have the tools that we need we have the analysis that we need mm-hmm. you know I, I think what's really critical right now is anti you know a settler consciousness and understanding of what it means to engage in anti-colonial struggle on a meaningful basis not just for you know uh, non-indigenous folks but for our folks as well you know decolonization has sort of been rendered you know lifestyle sort of like personal project uh, by many folks in that kind of declawing is what I want to attack, mm-hmm. you know, anti un, having developing and, and understanding of anti-colonial struggle on the terms of indigenous people whose lands we're on to the point where we can articulate attack and what that means. You know, that's where we need to have these conversations, you know, around fires, you know, with these circles and growing these circles to the point where we destabilize and attack uh, and undermine these these the institutions and ideas that are the underpinnings for this dominant social order. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if if that oh, helps to respond to your question. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, you know, this is this is this is how the U.S. is supposed to work. It's the design right. of the U.S. And I'm not interested in these discussions about like America and its ideology and you know I mean the the liberal discussions that are even happening within you know the the the, the radical sort of like you know sections of the, these struggles. I mean really it's like hearing people regurgitate chants of like we're all immigrants in like a black block or like you know Nazis go home. Yeah. Like no, you know we we need to be way beyond that. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, that might, this is a good time to, to have, you know, that conversation or have that argument, um, because, you know, 
the media, the central centrist media, the liberal media aligned with the Democratic Party is definitely, you know, turning on anti-authoritarian, anti-capitalist, anti-colonial uh, movements, which it always has. I mean, like you said, this isn't anything new. I mean, they're doing what they're designed to do. Um, but just looking at the energy that's been unleashed with Charlottesville, I mean, there's just been so much. I mean, people have literally torn down um, Confederate statues. There's been uh, waves of vandalism and attacks against all sorts of uh, vestiges of the Confederacy and also colonial monuments to um, you know, missionaries and everything. I mean, there's just been a lot of stuff that's happened over the last two weeks. Do you, do you have any thoughts about, you know, where this should go or, or just any, any thoughts at all about, you know, this kind of period that we're in? Yeah. I'm looking forward to the day when we celebrate that all the hands of oppressed people have worked towards dismantling this monument of colonial violence called America. I mean, if we're not understanding the institutional, you know, elements of this, I mean, then we're going to just do window dressing by having designations by the state handed down uh, with proclamations of indigenous people to stay, or like, you know, basically just the window dressing of removing these monuments. I think that there's something, I've, I've, I've written about this before, but I haven't really published it broadly, but, you know, there's something certainly, um, you know, powerful about the psychic solace that we get but if the state dismantles the statues and proclaims indigenous people's days and so forth, um, then what have we actually achieved if these structures and systems rooted in colonial violence remain intact? Um, you know, this political posturing diminishes, I think, the liberatory agitations. And, you know, I, I'm interested in going farther, you know. Um, you know, we, we apply this to our understanding of, and I want to bring this back to sacred sites because it's critical. You know, our sacred places are our sort of monuments of relations that we have maintained since time immemorial and are integral for our continued existence, whether it's Lake Oahe, whether it's Mauna Kea, whether it's Medicine Lake, whether it's South Mountain, whether it's Mount Graham, you know, Red Butte, the San Francisco Peaks, and it goes on and on and on. You know, these are the critical junctions in the battle against the pipeline, the Dakota Access Pipeline. Not many people could articulate what the understanding to defend the sacred really was on those terms. And so, you know, these sites, these monuments that we maintain um, are being attacked by these same political forces that are decrying select facets of their past transgressions, you know, but, you know, there are telescopes, ski resorts, pipelines, mines, skyscrapers, and other effigies of oppression that are continuing to desecrate or threatening to violate, you know, our sacred places right now. Um, and I'm, I'm not interested in shutting down momentum, um, but if we critically engage and multitask, um, I really believe that we can go much further and it'll be much more interesting to address like, you know, the questions of intergenerational trauma, historic trauma and suffering that are represented by these statues to conquistadors. You know, we, for, for generations, there have been folks in, um, so-called New Mexico who have cut the foot off of one of the statues to a conquistador, Onaite. Um, in representation to his suppression response to the Pueblo uprising, which is a powerful form of indigenous resistance that's obscured through colonial history. Um, you know, and I'm interested in, in sort of destabilizing where these conversations are happening, whether it's in media forums, you know, nonprofit paternalism or academic explaining, you know, to understand that ultimately it's just is about pulling weeds and to make sure that those weeds don't come back understanding that they have to come up from their roots. And so that's why I say, you know, I'm, I'm interested in that day when we all celebrate that 
the hands of all oppressed people have worked towards dismantling this monument of colonial violence called America. Because it's not just one monument that needs to come down. This whole project called the United States of America is a monument of colonial violence. And we understand that history. We don't need to unpack that. You know, we don't need a, a, a fucking, you know, academic thesis funded by nonprofits or whatever, you know, <laughs> right. projected out there. It's like we understand that because this is who we are. Mm-hmm. It's how, we, how we've come to be. It's a question of if we're going to define our future on our terms for our future, future and coming generations. Um, and that's really the struggle, I think, of how we need to sort of like understand and, and, and move forward. Um, but, you know, these are just the conversations that we have. We need to have face to face, you know, beyond um, the Twitterverse and social media. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's these are the real conversations that we have to have and articulate our position and to be able to have that understanding of how we engage in anti-colonial struggle to bring these systems down. Awesome. I don't know if that answers your question, but I mean, it's it's some of the shit that we've been working on. Great. Well, on that note, is there anything else you want to add? Encourage people to check out the Hall No campaign, see how you can help out, see how you can get involved in your local area, check out Indigenous Action. Um, Anything else you want to say? Any shout outs? Anything else you want to plug? Um, I just want to thank you and folks uh, who are on the front lines um in struggle against fascism it's interesting that it took the alt-right agitation to turn antifa into the next occupy Uh, (laughs) the um you know the the beautiful thing is is that i think we're in a a very interesting position those of us who've been engaged in anti-racist action organizing and anti-fascist organizing for years and Mm -hmm. you know the range of different like sort of associated anti-authoritarian projects that come along with this sort of range of identifiers and being anarchist so so forth radical um that we have a lot of lessons already learned um it's a question of the way that we approach and engage on a critical basis uh you know and not necessarily just saying oh we need to be strategic but think things through and engage meaningfully on a basis that we can have each other's backs rather than here's another moment um and uh it's superficial in relation to how we've um chosen to engage with our brothers and sisters and other relatives in this struggle mm-hmm um, so, you know, I, I think it's, I'm very skeptical, <laughs> um, you know, when folks, uh, you know, are, are well-meaning and show up and they want to tear down all, all the statues, you know, my question is, well, how far do you want to go? And one of the questions that we're asking here in so-called Flagstaff is, what does anti-fascism mean in Flagstaff? What does it look like? Anti-fascist resistance mm-hmm. and organizing. What does anti-colonial anti-fascism look like here? Mm-hmm. How do we want to shape its meaning? What other voices do we need to have in that articulation uh, so we can come up with something meaningful uh, to engage in, in as effective attack as we can?
comfortable with the contradictions Opportunistic dialectism And a shit ton of overly academic terms Caught in the afterthought We packaged all the regrets that you had bought And we're just tracing the damage patterns And now we're just tracing the damage patterns Did you forget You are listening to Clee Benali on Sacred Sites uh, by It's Going Down. This is the weekly review without Roman Reimer. We are supposed to have a guest here to play beautiful music with the cello. She has not arrived yet, so um, I think it's relatively appropriate. I think that Roman would not have a problem with me reading this on his show. Uh, I've been obsessed lately with um, 9-11 because of the recent 16-year anniversary and just been relatively obsessed with it. And um, <clears throat> the New York Times put out a oral histories compiled from September 11th from the New York Fire Department and the EMS, EMT, Firefighters Division Chiefs, basically the, the fire department that was there. Everyone who survived since, I think, 302 perished uh, when the buildings came down, they they give their accounts. So um, this is one of them I haven't read yet. I'll read it for you guys. I've read almost 75 of them now. There's 503 online. It's over 12,000 pages of first-person oral histories of people who were there at Ground Zero during uh, the World Trade Center collapse. A World T- Trade Center Task Force interview firefighter Maureen McArdle Schumann interview date October 17th. 2001, transcribed by Elizabeth F. Santa Maria. Miss Castorina, that's the person talking. The time is now 12.05. We are conducting an interview. We are at Engine 35. My name is Ron Castorina. Your name? Tom McCourt. And your name, ma'am? Maureen McArdle Schumann. Could you tell me what your assignment is in your rank? Assigned to Engine 35. I'm a firefighter first grade. On September 11th, 2001, can you tell me on that particular day what the events were, what you can remember? I came into work for a roster staff tour, usually a roster staffing you're detailed out if your company doesn't need you. I was assigned to 91 engine. It was our quarters when the first, uh, I was in our quarters when the first plane hit. We weren't sure if it was a small plane, a big plane. So I was in the firehouse when the first plane hit and I had the details out of the house to 91 engine And I just got in my car and left. And I got into my car and I went over to 91 Engine and I parked on the side street on 111th Street and walked into the quarters. I had all my gear in my arms and the announcement came over that it was a fifth alarm and 91 Engine was responding. It's unusual. It usually comes across over the computer. Today it came over the loudspeaker. I happened to have my cell phone in my hand, thank God. And I stuck it in my turncoat pocket and I got out on the rig and responded to the World Trade Center. We ended up going through 112th Street down to Central Park South and we came out of the park and we ran into all the other rigs. They They were all responding. Police cars, unmarked cars. It was like a big caravan down there. We parked on West Street. You know, basically we were all in a line. Whoever was in front of us parked in front of us and we parked behind them and we were on the wrong side of West Street facing the towers. So the windshield was that way. So we were on the wrong side of the street and we got out of the rig, got our stuff, carried cylinders, roll-ups, standpipe kit, all our gear, started huffing down West Street. 
and I was a little slower than the rest of them. Where were you going? Heading on what street? Heading West Street toward the towers. At this point, did the first collapse occur? No, no collapses. The second plane had hit. So you just saw two towers burning, burning. We went to the command center and the lieutenant port reported in. There were already 75 to 100 firefighters standing in this parking garage at the entrance waiting for assignments. Companies were coming out. Companies were going in for relief. Somebody yelled something was falling. We didn't know if it was part of an airplane coming down or desks coming out. It turned out it was people and they started coming out one after another. You saw the jumpers? We saw the jumpers coming. We didn't know what it was at first, but the first body hit, and then after that we knew what it was, and then they were just like constant. We were lucky most of them hit the setback. They weren't landing on the ground. How far were you from where they were jumping at this point? I didn't see anyone landing on the ground in front of us. Most of them were hitting the setback. I'm still across the street in the parking lot. Me and a guy from 91 just... I was just getting sick. I felt like I was intruding on sacrament. They were choosing to die and I was watching them and I sh shouldn't have been so, I shouldn't have been so me and another guy, it, I'm watching them and it shouldn't have been so. Me and another guy turned away and looked at the wall and we could still hear them hit. The lieutenant came up to us and said, we're going in. And so we got our gloves and our Scots back and went up to the part part by the command center and they said we need forcible entry tools in an engine we don't carry anything but our hose we have standpipe kits and we had things that we thought we would need they were sending us to tower two sub basement six so I called my husband on my cell phone I said I'm going in this is where I'm going and I left the message on his machine he wasn't at his desk at the time I was standing there and my captain who was at the medical office who had just had surgery on his shoulder happened to be there what are you doing here? You're on medical. He said, no one's on medical anymore. Everybody's at the scene. Okay. So my captain and the chauffeur from 91 volunteered to go back to 91 to get us the tools we needed because there was nobody else to let us into sub-basement six or any place else. So they went to the left and were standing by the command center listening to everybody give their positions. You know, what stairway they were using, you know, escape stairway, rescue stairway, things like that, or what floor they're on. And we're hearing the whole thing where everybody is. And someone comes running over to the table and says, a firefighter was hit by a jumper. He needs last rights. And so a couple of guys went to the right to give this guy last rights with Father Judge, I guess. And I don't know who else ran over. My captain and the chauffeur from 91 went to the left. We're standing there and we're looking up and we're trying not to look at people jumping. And we really felt like we were intruding on them. And the building had red fire, a ring of fire. And they started jumping and bouncing and I'm standing there staring and finally somebody yelled, run. And it took everybody out of that trance we were in. And we ran back into the garage. Anybody that went to the right was killed. People that went to the left were okay. Do you remember seeing anybody in particular that ran that way? No. You don't remember? No. I was just mesmerized, absolutely mesmerized by this building. I couldn't. We just, it was like watching people jump. You just can't believe what you're seeing, and you're just standing there like idiots staring. And I ran back into the garage. I mean, I didn't run because I was ahead of the pack. But by the time I turned around, it was asses and elbows, and I have a really bad sense of direction. And that's why I stay in the engine. 
So I move all the way over to the right and there was a curb and I ran my foot along the curb and I had my roll up on my shoulder and I ran my foot along the curb because if I get turned around, I don't want to keep walking in the same direction. So I just keep walking along with the stuff on my shoulder, trying to stay away from the pack because I didn't want to get killed by anybody running. And the thing, I didn't actually watch it come down. It just came down behind me. I was stuck inside the garage and that's while you were on the move? Yeah. I was just kind of walking and feeling close with my foot and I didn't want to get lost. And all I kept thinking was, this is the garage they blew up last time. You know, you always hear about secondary problems. So we got in there and we pretty much everybody started, are you okay? Are you okay? And I was feeling around on the ground to see if anyone had fallen. And then some guy said, I know how to get out of here. And so by now I put my face piece on and it was full of crap. And so I sucked in what I now find is asbestos and it was all over my eyes and my eyes are on fire. And this guy says, I know how to get out of here. And so we're all like holding onto each other's shirt sleeves and he leads us outside. And the next guy to us starts having an asthma attack. So he says, I need your mask. So I gave him my face piece and me and pulled something and else and me and someone else pulled in a police van with air conditioning on. And we were outside except for a piece of tree that I was standing next to 15 minutes before that. And I didn't know where outside was. It was complete black. Everybody had two inches of soot on them. It was just, you couldn't breathe. You know, we really couldn't breathe. So afterward, everybody seemed to calm down. I went back into the garage and started calling for my company that I was with. The lieutenant found me and one of the guys from 91 found me and we were still missing one member and the lieutenant said, come on, let's get out of here. And they actually took me into the parking garage and through the building and came out like half a block away. They said, go to the rig and stay right there. So I went back to the rig with the other guy, the other firefighter, and I said, I got to find our other guy. So I went back to the rig, checked the rig. The rig was still running. Because that's what they would do, keep the rig running all the time. The lights were still on. So I said to him, kidding, I said, let's move the rig a little further. So we backed up a block and we're standing there waiting for everybody to come, but no one is coming back and there are people wandering all over. It was, you know, we all kind of started going back toward ground zero because we were missing people and it felt like you weren't doing anything standing there and right now the sun was out and all of a sudden you're hearing there's a guy dressed in army fatigues with an automatic weapon shooting people and there's four more planes missing and you're hearing all these rumors yeah rumors there was a guy with a little tv like a civilian hooked it up to a building with an outlet he said there is eight planes all together and they only found four and you know we're getting bomb scares on this building and we're running for our lives and i said where are we supposed to go and he said go by the water and there's supposed to be a guy shooting at you? Yeah, go by the water. At least there's no building there. I said, but these buildings are so big. If they come down, it doesn't matter. So we went running, not knowing where to. So finally, I get back to the rig and I say, I got to call my husband. I just called him and I told him I was going into the tower and the tower just imploded. So finally, I couldn't get any signal on my cell phone. I found a pay phone. A guy gave me his calling card, the pay phone. He just used it seconds before. It didn't work for me. So finally, I get a hold of my husband and I say, I'm okay. I must have been hysterical. He, hysterical. he said, calm down, calm down. And I said, I'm okay. I made it. I'm all right. And then I called my father. I have two brothers on the job. So I called my father to find out where my brothers were. Both of them already called. I'm one of the few families that lucked out. Then I went back to the rig again and we were standing there and I'm standing there with this one firefighter and we still don't have the lieutenant back. We're still missing one member. We're standing there and I look up. The second tower starts with the ring of fire, some puffing and bouncing, just like the first one. 
So he says, it's going just like the first one. And so I ran back to the rig and I got on the back step and I still have my gear on and I'm in the fetal position. I'm afraid that if I got in the rig, that if anything came flying down the street, it would go through the windshield and kill me. So I figure I've got the whole rig in front of me. The hose bed is there. Hopefully if I stay low enough, he went and ran under the rig, got under the rig and the second building came down. The second building came down. So the second building came down and I didn't see him for a while. Kind of like I saw him for two seconds and he said, I got to find the rest of the guys. And I said, you know, I'm going to move the rig again. I'm a little too close. So we actually moved it with him. So when the second building came down, did all the rubble and the dirt? Yes. It came right down on West street, right up to your rig, just the way, just the way it shows in the news, that picture of the cloud coming down the street. That's exactly what happened. So I moved the rig another two blocks away and I turned it around. So not to face the towers and the other guy kind of saw some people he knew and we still didn't have the lieutenant and we were still missing one of the guys from 91 the chauffeur from 91 I heard they had taken him to the hospital he had chest pain so I saw my captain after that and he was okay so I was walking back and forth how close should I get all of a sudden building number seven now has 12 stories on fire and I ran into one of my guys from my company and from there he told me where the rest of the company was and I found the rest of my company and they were in the parking garage which I didn't know when I saw it, if it was the parking garage I had been in earlier. He said he needed search rope. So I found a rig and I found search rope and I told him to search how far the rope went. So I, you know, I really didn't know what the situation was and Engine 35 had lines on Tower 2. On Tower 1, they were doing some searching and then they pulled everybody out to get away from the scene. So we basically, I found my lieutenant, we found the missing guy, Everybody in my group was okay. Everybody was accounted for. I told the other lieutenant, I'm staying with my own company. You guys are all over the place for me. I want a company that stays together. My company stays together. So basically, we went back to the rig, and by now, the recalls were coming down. The bus was stopping right by the rig. Everybody company that got off, the bus was taking whatever they could take off our rig, you know, tools, whatever. So we're basically standing there. We didn't even have a Scott mask at this point. Everything is gone. How was your breathing? Were you okay? It was horrible. I had my eyes cleaned out about 12 times. Did you go to the hospital? No. Somebody left a baseball cap in the rig, so I grabbed that because the sun was killing my eyes. I mean, it took like a week and a half before the, from the dirt. Plus, it didn't help. I put the face piece on and sucked the air, and the whole thing was full of whatever it was and the crap that went into my eyes, too. Pretty much that's it. You know, we stayed on the rig the rest of the day, hung out, got water when we could, found a bathroom I could use, which was real important to me, stayed down. And at nine, nine o'clock, I finally, we all started wandering around and I went down to where the first overpass is and I saw the captain sitting at the table. And what happened was I heard one of the other female firefighters on the radio and I wanted to, I wanted to find her and find out some girlfriend of the captain of engine six. And I knew her company was the first or second there. So I wanted to see if anyone knew if she was working. So I didn't find, so you knew your brothers were okay. I knew my two brothers were okay. My brother, Kevin, he's in squad 41. He wasn't working. So he was on the recalls. So anybody that came in afterward was pretty much all right. It was just the initial sign-ins. I passed right by his rig. Where does your other brother work? In Queens. I knew he wouldn't be there unless he was on detail from 84. Again, I saw the guy, the captain I knew. He used to be a firefighter on truck 42, Charlie. And he said to me, oh my God, you're alive. We have you as missing. So I said, okay. What happened was there was a big communication problem. 
They kept calling my house from the battalion to see if anyone had heard from us because they didn't know who went down. Because with the recall, anyone who was here jumped on the rig, right? So everybody went. So, you know, that's why rescue companies lost 10, 12 guys. At a quarter to nine, they grabbed everybody they could and got on the rigs. Pretty much that's it. Mr. Castanoia, okay. The time now is 12.20. This concludes the interview. Thank you. Oh, boy. That music's a little too happy to play behind. Uh, really sad stuff. It, this has really affected me this week. Um, I, I, I feel that Roman would definitely appreciate me reading these, but he would probably be crying. <laughs> Because it's really, I mean, it, I mean, they really do make me tear up. Um, there's one by the, this doctor that's, he made me laugh because he had such a great sense of humor. Um, but these are the people that survived and it's so scary. I watched the film Loose Change last night and wow, you know, if you want to, I, it's so scary now to say anything about it because people say that you're on American or you're a terrible person but I'm not saying it didn't happen I'm reading all these people's things it happened but when they talk about puffs of smoke and the smell of what smelled like bombs and that everybody talks about bombs like and there weren't bombs really okay I mean uh, this is this is a great one uh, Monica the cellist isn't here yet so I'll read uh, one more here on the weekly review Without Roman Reimer, I am your fill-in, Pam Benjamin. This is World Trade Center Task Force interview Deputy Chief Medical Officer David Prezant. Interview date, November 14th, 2001, transcribed by Nancy Francis. Today's date is November 14th, 2001. The time is now 16.08 hours. We're here to conduct a World Trade Center interview with Dr. David Prezant. Deputy Chief Medical Officer of the New York City Fire Department. We are located right now in 9 Metro Tech on the second floor in the BHS conference move, room. Dr. Prezant, what I'd like you to know, or what I'd like to know is if you could tell me how you first learned about the World Trade Center disaster, and we'll take it from there. I was at home doing some paperwork earlier that morning, and the t on the TV heard that the World Trade Center had been hit by the first plane, and then actually saw on TV that it had been hit by the second plane. One of my roles as Deputy Chief Medical Officer is to respond to all major incidents where firefighters may be injured in a life-threatening manner, and of course, to assist EMS during major civilian operations. So I immediately got into the car and drove down. I approached the area from the West Side Highway going south and came to the site and parked on West Street several blocks north. I would say maybe four or five blocks north of where the command center was at that time. I then walked my civilian in my civilian clothes to the command center, which at the time was on West Street across the street from the World Trade Center. I guess across the street from the North Building roughly by that underground garage where they evacuated to when the first tower collapsed. I reported to the command center. I told them I was there. At the time, I saw Chief Nancy and Commissioner Freehan. I believe that I saw Fire Commissioner's Assistant Captain Goldbach. I'm not sure 100% certain of that. I saw Commissioner Fitzpatrick there. I saw several EMS chiefs. After about five minutes or so minutes, I realized that I was not being of help to anybody. At that time, no firefighters had been injured. The building had not collapsed. I remember overhearing several chiefs saying that a collapse was not possible. And then I volunteered to the EMS chiefs that I could be useful in helping them. 
So the EMS chief, I forgot his name. I can't remember whether it was Chief Gombo or Chief Goldfarb. I can't remember. They suggest that I report to Chief Welch, who was immediately outside the South Tower on the West Street and set up another EMS triage site for civilians and firefighters that would be coming out of that tower. And I reported there. It was only a matter of walking about a block across the street. I remember both during the time of walking toward the command center and then walking from the command center to my new area assignment, occasional noise from falling debris. One of these occasional sort of minor noises from falling debris wound up being a civilian. A fire marshal who was next to me remarked to me, do you hear that particular thud? That's the thud people make. That's the noise people make when they hit the sidewalk. That directed my attention a little bit more that some of this debris might be people. And I saw one or two people hit the sidewalk, obviously dead, nothing to do for them, so I did not direct my attention toward them. I continued to walk toward the South Tower. It was immediately outside the South Tower on West Street when Chief Welch, it could be Chief Wells, I'm not certain how to spell or pronounce his name. What did he look like? An older gentleman about my size or a little bit taller. He knows that I was there, so if he's interviewed, he'll know my name. It's a personality problem I have with names, but I believe it's Chief Wells. Gray hair, cut short, I believe. He was in full EMS uniform, so it was hard to tell. But he remarked to approximately six ambulances, most of them not New York City ambulances, that they should empty out their equipment and we should all walk to the middle of the West Street area, which is, you know, approximately a six to eight lane street. So we were on the lane almost right near the sidewalk outside the South Tower. And he says, let's walk to the middle of the street. We'll get all the ambulance equipment together. We'll pool it. I'm Chief Wells. I'm in charge of EMS operation here. Dr. Prezant, he's in charge of the medical operation for this triage area. And they were getting their stuff ready. And we were all sort of walking very slowly to the middle of the street. And I noticed that everybody in front of me all of a sudden started to run from the South Tower. We were not looking at the South Tower. We were looking toward the river. Now, because we were walking in the middle of the street, but everyone in front of me all of a sudden started to run. And I remember the first thought in my mind was, what a bunch of wimps. What are they running from? There's been a little bit of noise ever. um, There's been a, a little bit of noise ever since we've gotten here. And there'll be a little bit more noise and a little bit more debris, but we got a job to do. But within seconds, they were running and I started to run. To this day, no matter how I stretch my mind and no matter how many firefighters I talk to, what I think about most is a universal concept that there was not a lot of noise with this collapse. A little bit of noise. I don't know why that is. Maybe because it imploded inward. Maybe because the noise was dampened by the buildings around it. It was not a lot of noise. It was enough noise for all of these people to start running, but not enough noise for me to be all that concerned. I have to say... I ran because they ran. Who were you with when you first started to run? This group of EMS people, and they were setting up this triage area. Do you remember their names? No. And I wouldn't, because I would never know any of these people. Those were non-New York City fire. They were volunteer ambulances or non-911 or private ambulances from hospitals, and I can't remember which hospitals. And you began to run in which direction? So we ran away from the tower toward the river, and we continued to run in the direction we had been walking in, away from the tower, across West Street toward the Hudson River. And as we were running, I started to get hit by debris. I was hit time and time again by debris. A lot of debris fell on my head, a lot of my back, on my legs, on my right leg, my right knee and left hip. And as I was running, my goal now was to get across the street and underneath the most southern pedestrian bridge. There were these three bridges that crossed West Street, one of them very north and then two of them right near the towers. On your map, you only show the two that were near the towers. It was the most southern bridge, so I was outside of what you call here. 
Pause. I was on the corner originally of Liberty and West Street, not on Liberty, but on West Street itself, right outside the World Trade Center buildings, the Southern Tower. Then I ran underneath that pedestrian bridge. By the time I was knocked to the ground, I was nearly entirely across West Street and I was under the pedestrian bridge, but had not gotten past the street. I was still on the street itself. I was completely prone, lying down with stuff still falling on me. Some thoughts came to mind, perhaps as I was running, perhaps as I was finally lying down flat. The first thought was that I had come here to help people and I had helped absolutely no one yet. And what a complete, total waste of my time to get killed here. (laughs) It's very funny. The second thought was that I wondered whether my wife would know whether I was here or whether anyone would know that I was here to find me. And the third thought was that it was taking a long time to die and there was a possibility that I was not going to die and that what I should do is emulate firefighters. I should digress for a moment to say that I'm not a firefighter. I have no experience with collapses. I'm not a mine worker, anything like that. But as a medical officer here, I often talk to firefighters and I speak to them about their smoke inhalation events. Somehow at the back of my mind, I have heard firefighters say that what you really have to do is find an air pocket and that's the main goal. So I had this crazy idea that I should create an air pocket and that if I'm lying completely flat, there's no air pocket. So I used up all of my strength to get up on my hands and knees in sort of a doggy position. And I had this crazy thought, like I was saying, that underneath me is this area that I'm protecting in this doggy position and it'd be a pocket of air that I could breathe off. Now thinking back, this was a pretty stupid idea because construction material would be filling in that pocket, but that's the thought I had at the time. So I worked to get into that position and things were still falling and I struggled to maintain that position. And then ultimately the collapse stopped and I was buried completely in construction material. Now my goal was obviously to get out of this position. Unknown to me while this was happening, but now obvious to me is that there were two large plywood sheets that had created a sort of roof above me. And I was coughing tremendously. I was gagging. There was all sorts of particulate matter in my throat and eyes and my eyes were burning and my throat was burning and I was coughing. I was choking. And then I felt or saw or pushed these two plywood boards. Luckily by moving them, I actually really did not have to spend much time digging myself out because by moving these two plywood boards, I was able to have enough space so that I could get out of this debris and I could stand up. I was surprised that I could stand up. My right leg was hurting a lot and my left leg hurt a little and I had minor bruises on my back that were bothering me and I felt the bumps on the back of my head that I sort of felt. And But the main thing was that when I got up, it was completely black. It was blacker than midnight. I could not see the sky. The air was like syrupy charcoal paste. Again, coughing, gagging, eyes irritating, hard to breathe. And the only thing I could think of at that time that could explain this was that I was still buried. I felt that the street had not collapsed beneath me, so I knew it wasn't subterranean. But I felt that the only way that all this particulate matter could be creating this total blackness is that a roof had been created so that maybe the collapse had created a tunnel above ground, a sort of mine construction above ground. So I had one goal now, which was to walk in the opposite direction of the trade center, walk downtown. I had not lost my orientation. I knew when I stood up that although I couldn't see, I knew that to the left of me was downtown and to the right of me would be north and behind me would be the World Trade Center. Uh, the World Trade Center where I'm sorry there was I was in professional there was a phone call 
uh, and right in front of me would be the Hudson River. And I, I had a full sense of that orientation. Were there other persons around you? I'll get to that. So I got out of some more debris and I started walking. And my goal was that I would walk downtown, walk away from this area and to get to wherever this tunnel ended. And then I would start digging and making noise. I was 100% convinced that if I made enough noise, firefighters would come and rescue me. While walking, almost immediately after standing up and walking a few feet, I came across several individuals. I came across an EMT who was a New York City Fire Department EMT. I don't know his name, but he knows me, and he's seen me since then and has remarked that we survived this. And we found to the left of us a civilian with a broken leg. To the left of us would have been a little bit toward the tower. To the right of us would have been a little bit toward the river. To the right of us was a civilian with apparently an injured arm. And both of these people we found by accident. I'm not trying to say we did anything heroic. It was, we just found them. We tripped over them practically. We offered them assistance of helping to stand them up and to evacuate as a group rather than individuals. So we focused their attention on following us and we helped them. Certainly the broken leg guy to walk, but it was not our goal to rescue these people. And it was not an act of heroism to rescue them. It was rather, we were walking out. We might as well take them with us. We then came across, as we walked maybe a half a block or so, a hysterical civilian, an overweight woman, I think she was African-American, crying, screaming, wanting to sit down on one of the concrete embankments on the side of West Street that's closest to the river. Again, not doing anything heroic. Someone else might have stopped and comforted her. I had my typical approach to her, which actually worked, but not to any credit of my own. I told her that she had one choice. She can get up and follow us, or we're going to leave her behind. We had to remind her of her one choice on several occasions, but she complied. As a group, myself, the EMP, the EMT, the two civilians, plus the third hysterical civilian, we were able to walk several blocks down West Street toward what would be the ferry. Within a block or two of walking, we came across a supervisory fire marshal. Again, I don't know his name. He remarked that he survived by jumping underneath a car and that the car had been completely flattened, but he was able to crawl out. So now this group of three civilians, one AMT, one fire marshal, and myself, we continue to walk. It was still under the, we were still under the, con I was still under the concept that we would walk and make noise and firefighters would rescue us. I can't tell you how many minutes. It certainly wasn't hours. It certainly wasn't 20 minutes. It was minutes. I can't tell you how many blocks. It wasn't 10 blocks. I can't tell you the blocks. Two, four, the black sky and that I only had envisioned could only be possible with a mine or a tunnel that had been created. The black sky became gray, and as we continued to walk, it became less gray. It never turned to white, but it became gray, and it became obvious for the first time that we were never in a tunnel, a mine, that this blackness was just by the collapse. It was that thick of particulate matter. I haven't seen any videotapes on TV or any videotapes that the fire department has that captured that. The videotapes show a gray cloud. Sometimes it looks like a whitish gray cloud. But if you were there, you saw that it was completely black. I saw one videotape that a doctor took on CNN. I don't know why any doctor would have a video camera with him, so I've always wondered about that. But anyway, there's a moment in the videotape where it goes black, and you sort of think he dropped the camera. But having been there, I know that if you stayed at ground zero, you were completely covered in an area that looked black. That's important to me as a lung physician, knowing what I inhaled, how it affected me and how it affected the members. If I can take anything positive out of this experience, it was being able to experience it firsthand and survive. Anyway, we continued to walk down the street and about halfway between 
uh, and this is just an approximation, but about halfway between the collapse and the South Ferry, we came upon a mobile command unit, fire department, and they, I believe, had approached from Brooklyn. None of their phones worked. Their radio barely worked with headquarters, but not with any of the other command centers. I was convinced the entire command center was dead and very worried that I would be one of the more ranking fire officials left because I have no fire experience whatsoever and wouldn't know what to do or to tell anyone. But I did have a good enough sense that this mobile command center should not sit where it was, so I directed them to follow us. Some of us got in. Some of us continued to walk. I believe I continued to walk. We went down to the ferry hoping we would meet other people. We did meet other firefighters and officers. One fire officer, a captain, again, I don't know his name and never will. Can you describe him? No, older gentleman. I really can't describe him. But he had grouped together maybe 10 or 12 firefighters and told them they would get whatever, to get whatever tools they could find and they were going to progress up West Street and find whatever they could start to dig. And I thought that showed a lot of great command presence. He went and did his work and I stayed with the command center. Then civilians were all around and the South Ferry area, everyone was coughing, gagging, irritating, trying to get some water, rinse this out, rinse that out. I don't think it was irritating. I think it was irrigating, but the translation was a little funky. Then from another direction, I can't remember where, Chief Negro, Nigro, Chief Operations of the time, we would find out later, was the surviving highest ranking fire officer approached this area. I can't begin to tell you the sense of total relief knowing that a high-ranking fire officer had survived and that somebody would know what type of commands to give and what to do. I also saw Dr. Kelly approaching. I can't remember whether she came with Chief Nigro or whether I saw her at the same time. There was a captain with her. They were approaching from what direction? I can't really remember. I can't remember. It was great to see Dr. Kelly and find out that she had survived. I had not known that she was even there at the time because I had not seen her when I was at the command center. I had not seen Chief Nigra at the command center. He had not been at the command center. He had been at the peripheral command center or been walking around. I think he told me later he was walking around the towers to see it from another angle. So once Chief Nigra was there, obviously he's in command. He knew what to do. He told us that we would walk back to the trade center and he directed the mobile command center to go in whatever direction he told them to go because their phones were still not working and their radio was barely working. And we walked Dr. Kelly, myself, chief Nigro, his aide, and the captain that helped Dr. Kelly. And we all walked uptown, but not up West street. We sort of walked toward the Brooklyn bridge a little bit and then made a left and sort of walked up Broadway. In fact, maybe that's what we did to approach the world or maybe that's what we did to approach the World Trade Center by Broadway. As we did, we made a decision that we, Dr. Kelly and myself, would set up a triage center. Interestingly enough, it was selected as being the UFOA headquarters, which I believe is 254 Broadway or 225 Broadway, something like that. But we decided on the lobby of that building because there was a pharmacy, <clears throat> a Dwayne Reed, that we could use for supplies and to set up a triage center. I got to interrupt this now because I got to go to this meeting. I have this 4.30 meeting. I have to go. Ms. Rom, okay. Dr. Prezant, I'm happy to restart again tomorrow. Ms. Rom, all right. What I'm going to do is I'm going to identify myself as Patricia Rom from the Bureau of Investigation and Trials. And we're going to conclude this interview at this moment so that you can go to your meeting. The time now is 1637 hours and we'll regroup and we'll redo this interview at your next earliest convenience. And we'll just pick it up from where you left off. 
Dr. Prezant. I know this story well because I've given it several times. That's why it's so well rehearsed. So I'll know to start at the time we were at the UFOA building and started to build this triage center, which is an interesting story in itself. So I look forward to it. Ms. Rom. Okay, Dr. Present. Thank you very much. Ms. Rom, thank you so much. Dr. Present, I'm going to apologize for having to leave. The interview adjourned November 27th, 2001, at which time the interview of Dr. Present continues as follows. Mr. Kandari. Today is 20, November 27, 2001. I'm George Kandari with Patricia Rom. We're here with Dr. David Present, Deputy Chief Medical Officer, for a continuation of the interview they had on November 14th. Dr. Present, can you tell us just what happened as the continuation of what happened that day? So we had gotten to the point where we were setting up a triage center in the lobby of the building where the union, the UFOA, has their headquarters upstairs. It wasn't selected because of the union being in that building. It was just an interesting concept. It actually was selected because there was a Dwayne Reed in the lobby, which we were able to open and utilize many of their supplies. Our concept at that moment was that we would be having a very minimal medical intervention, just bandages and that type of stuff, and then move them on to whatever emergency room had not been overwhelmed by this event. As the moments progressed, and it probably was within less than half an hour, we were joined by several other medical officers, Dr. Garvey, Dr. Ortiz, Dr. Maloney, and within an hour, Dr. Manor. And these are all fire department medical officers who came in to help out with what we thought would be an overwhelming number of injured firefighters, EMS, civilians, etc. Also within that hour, one of the advantages of New York City, at least on days like that, is the tremendous number of physicians that tend to live and work in the area and nurses as well. Our goal had been to set up a very minimal, stabilize, then move on to an emergency room type of triage center. But happenstance would have it that there was a convention of surgeons a block away who then joined us and we round out with, you know, estimated numbers, six vascular surgeons, four orthopedic surgeons, four general trauma surgeons and nurses. And so we had the staff to set up like a true MASH unit and we had no idea what we'd be seeing. We had a lot of surgical personnel, so it seemed like a waste not to utilize them, but we had no surgical supplies. We called one or two of the nearby emergency rooms who, although they had not seen a lot of patients yet, were also worried they would be overwhelmed, so they would not give up any of their supplies. One of the surgeons who worked out a special surgery, which is far north of the event and who also doesn't have a very active emergency room, they tend to be sort of tertiary care center. So he used working cell phones to call that hospital and have supplies brought to the lobby. And we sent an ambulance up to get them. The ambulance got back and we had tons of surgical supplies. And then we separated out the lobby into sections where we could have a surgery area, a psychological area, an area for cardiac events, an area for eye irritation, asthma, smoke inhalation, and that kind of stuff. As doctors always do in the events, we set this up so there would be a tremendous amount of room for surgery. You need a lot of room to do that stuff and very little room for eye irritation because of how much room um, do you need? And it's really not that interesting. Dr. Firestein, the psychiatrist from the fire department joined us shortly and he was in charge of the psychological area. It wound up that we didn't have many injuries at all. Like we, like many of the emergency rooms, all the emergency rooms, with the exception of the first few injuries had no injuries. The reports that you hear about on the radio and TV, like St. Vincent saw thousands of patients. They saw thousands of people with eye irritation and we were the same way. All of the space we had surgery for was completely unutilized and the small little area we had for eye irritation was overwhelmed. 
How big an area was in this lobby? The lobby was not large because this lobby was really just a feeding area for the Duane Reed and for a series of elevators that took you upstairs and for a back restaurant. We converted the back restaurant into the psychological area and a surgery area. And we used one of the area elevators, I think, there were four or six elevators as a separate patient examining room. And there were sort of feeding areas in front of these elevators for eye irritation and smoke inhalation. And there was a shoe store, which we ultimately opened as well, and we were going to use. It wound up we didn't have a lot of patients. Had the second tower collapsed at this point? Oh, yes. The first and second towers had collapsed within minutes of each other. This evacuation that we did, walking to the South Ferry and then meeting Chief Nigro and all of that after the second tower collapsed. Tower 7 had not collapsed, so this would be late morning, early afternoon. That's an important thing because that moves me to my next point of where we are. We started hearing some noise. There were tons of firefighters, by the way, outside. They had set up one of their command centers, not immediately outside, but maybe like a block away on Broadway. So there were tons of firefighters there. And that's where they were doing a staging area where, where the recall was happening and firefighters were reporting there. But it was more than just noise. It was some noise, some rumbling or something. And there were rumors circulating. There were rumors, uh, there were rumors that were circulating. You know, people, you know, the doctors and nurses would go out to the triage area to take a break, even though we didn't have a lot of patients, just to sort of walk around the street in front and see what was going on. So maybe that was a source for rumors. But anyway, more to the point, a rumor started to develop that Tower 7 was going to fall on us or nearby us. Having lived through the collapse and having Dr. Kelly just lived through the collapse with both of us getting buried, this was not a very pleasing feeling. It really does make me understand a lot about psychological stress that can occur in these events because I would not have had the same worry about this if we'd just not come through one of them. We went outside to speak to the chief, the head chief. His name is Chief Herring, great guy, but he said, you know, it's not going to be a problem. Tower 7 may collapse. It's not going to be anywhere near here. It's not going to be a problem, but we were really concerned about this. On the other side of Broadway, maybe a block or two north, is this park by City Hall. Some of the doctors got it in their mind that they would not want to be stuck in this building if there was a collapse. They didn't quite believe that there wasn't going to be a collapse and that it wasn't going to fall on us. I really couldn't prevent them because I was a little worried about this myself. And they decided, and we all sort of decided, that we would take half the supplies and move them out into that park. And by the time we were about done with this, we interacted with Chief Herring again. He basically was incredulous and said, what are you crazy? You've moved into the collapse zone. And if this collapse occurs, the dust cloud is going to knock that out that entire park. You're going to be useless there. You've made it worse. Are we talking about the park by Winter Garden? I'm talking about the park in front of Pace University. So this is where you are. Liberty? No, we're on Broadway now. City Hall Park is over here. This is a city hall park. It would be right there at city hall park, right? That's where we'd moved into. Pace is right here. And we're somewhere around here. And we moved into this park. And now we've found that we've done a stupid thing, but we are too move nervous to move back into that building. So we convinced, convinced Chief Herring that he needs to assign us to a different building. And he sent some officers with us and we found a place that would be very useful for us um, at, would be on Pace University. So we got everything up and out of our building and out of the park and we moved into Pace University. It actually made a much nicer triage area because A, there was a lot more space and B, we had learned about this eye irritation and so we gave more space for the eye irritation area. 
But these were all volunteer doctors and nurses that set up the first triage area, picked up everything, carried it themselves to the second area, and then set up the second triage area. About midway into setting up physically the second triage area, hanging IV bags and everything, a tremendous noise occurs. And it's so loud that everybody rushes to the rear of Pace University building, all of the doctors, all of the nurses. When the noise was over, we went to the front, the dust cloud from Tower 7, just like Chief, Chief, Chief Herring said, wiped out that park. If we had had any supplies there, any doctors there, they would have been killed. I mean, oh, it, they wouldn't have been killed. I mean, it wasn't that massive debris that fell on the, fell on the park. They would have been useless. The dust cloud went all the way up the door to Pace University, up the stairs, across the street, right up to the door, the lobby door. And we stayed there waiting for patients and very few showed up. Around 8.30, we closed that area and we were available just going around in the car to see firefighters and et cetera. And I'll tell you just one other interesting anecdote. We're getting ready to close and a lot of doctors and nurses sort of, one of the problems with these events is volunteers. I mean, they're fantastic and they really mean the best, but a lot of times they'd be better off going to their hospitals rather than coming to the scene. One of the benefits of a triage area is at least it gets them out of the street where they might be utilized uh, and at least they're safer. We had a lot of people and it was really beautiful. Anyway, as we're closing, a young woman in surgical scrubs comes rollerblading into Pace University, into the auditorium where uh, we were. And she says, I'm here. I'm ready. I'm ready to go. And I say to her, I'm sorry, but we're getting ready to close. There are unfortunately a lot of dead, but not too many wounded. I'm happy to have you here. And I'm glad you made the effort to be here, but there just aren't that many patients. And I'm really sorry you had to come down. I'm just trying to be nice to her because she's done all this effort. And she says, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I'm not a physician. I'm a veterinarian. So in the back of my mind, I'm certain, and she's certain she saw it on my face. I'm looking at her and I'm saying to myself, oh, this is some liberal nutjob veterinarian who's come to save the parakeet. And we've got thousands and thousands of dead people. And she's here to save a parakeet. And I need this like I need a hole in the head. But of course, I don't say that to her. I say, well, you know, we're not in charge of the parakeets and we're closing and I'm sorry you came down here. And she said, no, I'm not here for the parakeets, all right? This is a catastrophe and they have rescue dogs here. There's a federal mandate that when there are a certain number of rescue dogs on site, there has to be a veterinarian present to keep them working for long periods of time. Otherwise, you have to take them off or whatever. Now I felt like an idiot and I realized she was of tremendous value and I sent her over to the ESU police force who I'm certain were able to utilize her services. So really, after you moved to Pace, you didn't see many civilians walking by and not many people at all. It was like just a few, a desolate area. There were tons of firefighters and police officers and civilians, most of them coming in for an eye wash or to get out of the dust area for a while. But we really didn't deal with any wounded or chest pain or significant smoke inhalation. The same was true for the emergency room that was very nearby, which is downtown hospital, downtown hospital. They were really empty. So basically you were protected from the dust clouds. No, I was buried. You were buried. I was buried. You missed tape one. Sorry. No problem. No, I was buried. I looked like a definite walking wounded, definitely. My pants were ripped to shreds, blood all over me. It didn't help my hairstyle, which is usually stressed to begin with. It sounds like you uh, it sounds like a very good triage area you set up there. Yes. It seems like you had everything going for you. Yes, it's just unfortunately there was no one to treat. Yes. Although there was a very interesting triage concept when the building first collapsed, which was unknown to us. And I think, you know, I don't know but I think unknown to EMS, that 
this is a lot of uh, that is that a lot of people were evacuate, evacuated to Staten Island and to Jersey City, including many of our firefighters. So we had nearly, I don't have the exact number in front of me right now, but 12 or 15 firefighters that were actually hospitalized at Jersey City Medical Center, two of them critically ill, and they've both recovered very well now. And the others with just fractures are also recovering well. There were tons of civilians brought to Liberty State Park, which was manned by the Jersey City Medical Center and several areas in Staten Island because ferries were just picking up wounded and taking them and some fireboats and some police boats were taking as well. Rather than taking them around the bend at Bellevue, which if for someone was to think about that would have been happening, that would have been happening the way you would have thought boats would have been dealing with this. They would have gone around the bend at Bellevue or around the bend up the river to the New York uh, Hospital Cornell. One would never have imagined them going to Staten Island or Jersey City. I believe that is based on the total concept that the entire city is being attacked. Manhattan may not exist for long. Besides the face-to-face -face with Chief Herring, did you have any radio communications with any other chiefs? Did they know where you were? No. We had the communications with the mobile center, which were unclear of how much communication was going on from them due to technical difficulties. We had communication with Chief Nigro, who left us when we got to Chief Herring, and then our communications were totally with Chief Herring. But everybody knew that this triage center existed. It was known, yes. But most of your communication was face-to-face, -face, not over the radio or anything like that. The way Chief Herring communicated, I'm not too certain. No, I'm talking about you. Oh, ours was face-to-face. I'd like to thank you for sitting in on this interview. The time is 13.32. This, this concludes our interview, Dr. Prezant. My pleasure. All right, again, too happy of music to be behind this interview. Uh, but this was, I can't have it. It's too, it's too incongruous. The happy music with the sad interview. It's just too incongruous. Um, so this was the World Trade Center Task Force interview with Deputy Chief Medical Director Officer Dr. David Prezant. An entire catalog is available online if any of you are interested um, in reading the first person narratives. It's a rich vein of city records from September 11th, including more than 12,000 pages of oral histories rendered in the voices of 503 firefighters, paramedics, and emergency medical technicians were made public on August 12th. This is in 2006, I believe. And the New York Times published all of them. They're all still on the internet, and that's where I was reading them from. So... They're, they're stunning and scintillating and heartbreaking and amazing. And I'm wondering how many of these people have died from cancer because of the asbestos in the buildings that went black. They all say it went black and they all breathe that stuff in. And this has been the, this has been the weekly review without Roman Reimer. And I'm sorry that our musical guest, Monica, the cellist was not able to make it in, but we got that first hour with the podcast that Roman wanted to play. And I'm sure that Roman would not have minded me reading first person narratives from people who were on site at ground zero. Uh, since this is still the week that September 11th happened, the 16th year anniversary. So, um, you know, our hearts go out to all the families who lost people. Like I'm getting really a little bit choked up about it because it is there were like 3,000 people that died and, and all of these people who are still affected by uh, respiratory issues and we um, and they all kept saying they heard bombs you've heard the official story from the government I'm not going to be a 9-11 nut job I'm just going to say go out do some research read some narratives watch loose change see see what 
the see what the discrepancies are between what our government told us and what probably actually occurred. <laughs> All right. Um, thanks again for joining us here um, on the Weekly Review with Roman Reimer. This is Pam Benjamin. I filled in today and I hope you guys all have a beautiful week and do something nice for somebody. Say, say something nice to somebody on the street or smile at them or something. I think Roman would also appreciate that. All right. Bye-bye. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me sea dogs and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutinyradio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutinyradio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shitface McRat. <laughs> Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me sea dogs and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutinyradio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutinyradio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shitface McRat. <laughs> Do you need an awesome and underground space for an event? Look no further than mutinyradio.fm. Our 30-seat flexible space can accommodate your acoustic band, birthday party, comedy show, dance party, karaoke super fun, theater event, fundraiser. If you think it, we can do it. You run the door in promotion, we run the sound, space, and podcast. Rentals available Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday from 8 to 10 at Mutiny Radio FM's performance space at 2781 21st Street in the Deep Mission at 21st in Florida. Contact Pam at pamsidai at hotmail.com for more options and booking dates. Incredible socialist prices so you can be creative in a free speech space without breaking the bank. That's Mutiny Radio Rentals every Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday from 8 to 10. Book your event now. Trying to hurt me, but boy, how it burns me whenever she touched me. And oh, I feel so lucky. Want to spend a summer Sunday laughing your cares away? Then come join the fun at San Francisco's Comedy Day. One stage, five hours, 40 comedians, a million laughs, and it's free. Besides our annual celebration of stand-up, did you know that Comedy Day offers workshops that teach Bay Area students how to use humor to resolve conflict? 
Comedy Day is so serious about ending bullying, it's banning all comedians from using the following phrases. Knee slapping, side splitting, break a leg, bust a gut, knock them dead. Those words hurt. But Comedy Day feels good. It's fun for the whole family. Did I mention it's free? Hey, comedy fans, don't miss the 37th Annual Comedy Day, the original longest-running free outdoor comedy concert in the world. The funny starts at noon on Sunday, September 17th at Sharon Meadow in Golden Gate Park, San Francisco. One stage, five hours, 40 comedians, a million laughs. It's free! Good evening there, my friends, here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's Underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for a mere $5 every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because $5, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere $5 is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anywhere. Like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak feeling. So all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse. Or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? It's a cash cock, honey. Try has already been done before. 
and there's nothing really you can do about it. So remember to avoid taking risks and to whisper into feathers together in the dark. It's the right thing to do, and viewers like you. When the circus is in town, it's time for a train ride. The best circus town train rides are the dependable ones that'll depart and arrive on time. The ones that'll take you from clown to trapeze, quad to elephant, see? Look on the train with the circus promise. It's intense. Shaggy Soul Shakedown Party tonight. All right, folks, as you know, as you know, Shaggy Soul Shakedown is every Thursday. Every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. here on mutinyradio.fm. What's with the limp? I got hit by a car on my bike. This person just ran a red light. How are you going to work? You wait tables. I don't know. I'm terrified. I count on my tips and these hospital bills are confusing. The insurance adjusters just treat me like I'm a piece of paperwork. Man, you should go to johnstrausslaw.com. John Strauss is a great personal injury attorney. When I got hurt, he handled everything for me. He was on my side. And best of all, I didn't have to pay out of pocket. He got paid when I did. That's great because I cannot afford to pay out of pocket. Yeah, don't let them confuse you and trick you. They treat you like you're a business. And it's not business, it's personal. Injury. I have never shed a tear While around me nothing stands I would finally cry again If I could weep in Antonia's hand 